Hello and welcome. I am Piers Ridyard, CEO of RDX Works, a core developer of the decentralized finance protocol Radix, a public ledger entirely focused on bringing DeFi into the mainstream. This is our podcast, The DeFi Download, a show about decentralized finance and all things crypto, where we dive into the details of the projects, assets and services that are powering the DeFi revolution. Today, I have Mark Richardson, project lead at Bancor. Bancor has created Carbon. Carbon is the next logical step in DEX evolution, turning its back on the AMM and bringing order book-like functionality on-chain. Carbon launched on the 20th of April and yesterday passed 100 strategies created. Mark, welcome again to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Piers. So we're turning our back on the AMM. I think this is a, this is a, big, this is a big thing. I mean, like Carbon Bancor created the AMM and the first people who created the AMMs back when Bancor first launched. Um, it's sort of been this massively popular piece of functionality, Uniswap V1, then Uniswap V2, and now Uniswap V3, all AMM based. And I think that a lot of people, especially in DeFi summer, sort of held the AMM, the automated market maker, to be a zero to one innovation within DeFi. I certainly sort of often talked about it as being the zero to one innovation because now people could provide liquidity like as a almost as a uh, as a professional liquidity provider mm -hmm. to what felt like being a professional liquidity provider to exchanges and now i could make money just by having my passive position on uniswap v2 i could put you know some eth and some usdc or some usdc and some some exrd or whatever onto onto uniswap v2 and i as an unsophisticated player in the market could provide liquidity and this meant that tokens and, and and projects that were just starting out could launch could put their could put their liquidity into a pool and could help bootstrap the liquidity of what would previously have been something very difficult even to get listed on an exchange but now because you have this community of passionate sort of providers of liquidity people who want the token to succeed you could bootstrap that liquidity and make a token tradable and actually be very successful at creating huge amounts of liquidity in in your token to make sure that that token could you know have a high degree of secondary market trading which ultimately led to functionality um, of that token within the DeFi ecosystem beyond just just that sort of tradability so why are we saying that the amm is dead what killed the amm and 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 what comes next my, my position is not that the amm is dead um by any means um, but I think that uh, the, there are a couple of things that you touched on that uh, I think warrant um, some further discussion. So yeah, the, the firstly, um, when when Bancor invented the um, the AMM, it was a, a very permissioned type product, um, and I think that that was appropriate because um, it is it, it at least recognizes that um, liquidity provision is a sophisticated um, act, right? The, the people that provide liquidity to centralized exchanges are highly educated um, and very, um, let's say, 
they, they, the information resources that they have available to them cost $350,000 a year, right? And they need that to make, uh, to make good decisions and make sure that they remain profitable. What, what costs $350,000 a year? For example, the Bloomberg terminal. Okay. Right. The, uh, you, to actually see, you know, how, um, you know, how liquidity, uh, across an industry is, is behaving. And these are the kinds of things that are going to influence, right. uh, the, the way that you set up, um, liquidity in, in an order book. Um, the, you know, the original Bancor V1 was a, by all, um, by any measure, a, um, you know, a fully regulated exchange. If you wanted to set up liquidity on that protocol, we would send you forms, right? You would have to actually physically sign and, and send them back. Um, and in general, the, uh, the target user were projects themselves, not their community members. Mm-hmm. The culture at the time was that, uh, if you're launching a token, um, that you would be sort of self-motivated to create liquidity for it. Yeah. Um, and you know, cause that's in the interest of the project. Um, and that you probably wouldn't net, like be interested in returning for it, right? Cause it, the only reason that you would sort of want to unpack the liquidity that you've set up is because you are, you know, abandoning the, the project now. Um, and so it was a very different, um, it was a very different use case, or at least it was serving a, a very specific, um, problem in, mm-hmm. in cryptocurrency. And remember, the time period was very different. This is 2017 we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, DeFi hadn't been coined yet. That that term didn't really exist in people's minds. Right. Um, you know, Maker Protocol wasn't around yet. You know, this was a very, very, um, a very, very different time, unrecognizable um, compared to what we have today. Right. And I think that what we saw uh, is that the the expectation that providing liquidity can or should be um, a productive, like a financially productive activity mm-hmm. that came from, you know, the, the participants in, in cryptocurrency. I think that, you know, a, as something that you can participate in, in a decentralized, in a permissionless manner, um, this was in a way Uniswap's most significant innovation on, right. on AMMs. Their idea that it doesn't have to be, um, you know, it doesn't need to be regulated as a traditional exchange, that um, you know anyone can can provide liquidity and set up pairs and that kind of thing. Um, that was the thing that really sort of set off DeFi summer because now mm-hmm. you've got as a you know a, a, a blockchain participant something to do with the tokens that you have because right. I, you know it, uh, it's there's something spiritual about it right you feel sort of more connected to the hardware right, right. when you're uh, actually an active cog in the um, in the you know the financial system right. and I think that that was extremely appealing. Um, but it was also a bit of a lie, at least on the um, the financial performance stuff. Yeah, the, I, well, I, the think, model... I think we didn't. I think that we didn't understand at the time impermanent loss, right? And but I I, I think you're right. absolutely right. Like this idea that I, ultimately, I always think of these systems as basically a, uh, creating incentives to for alignment and the Uniswap concept of a set incentive alignment was so interesting because it was like hey as a holder of a new token you can help make sure that this token is successful because secondary market liquidity is critical to the success of a token by providing liquidity to a pool and in doing so you'll also get paid in doing so you can also earn the fees from 
the exchange of those tokens when come, people come and trade it. And that was so interesting as well. I have this I have this saying, which is there's only two mar- there's only two companies, company types, business types that make money in crypto. And the two business types are exchanging and market making. Right? If you look at right. our industry, what are the biggest players in our industry? They are the centralized exchanges, Binance, Coinbase, Kraken, all of those guys, and then less visible, but if you know the industry, you know they make so much money it's the market makers you know your jumps your winter mutes your key rocks of the world right so like those those two those two players continuously make huge amounts of money and so is this this really interesting thing is hey we can we can create a social basis for this we can create a tool that can allow anyone to come in and be a participant and instead of paying lots of money to an exchange or paying lots of money to a market maker you can list for free and now your community right. can make money from making making a market in the token and now that 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 aligns incentives the community wants the token to be successful but they'll also get paid to provide liquidity yeah, I think that, um, and you know, it's worth, um, you know, uh, it's worth giving a shout out to uh, like Compound and Synthetics here, who really sort of pioneered the liquidity mining model, right? Mm-hmm. And they they, yeah. re- they rarely get the, um, you know, the, um, the the clout that they deserve for it. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that idea of if you use the protocol in the way that I want you to use it, um, we're using our own token as the, like a literal currency that you will receive in return for the services that you provide. Right. Um, and I think that um, in in some cases that was handled extremely well. Um, I still think, um, you know, I, Compound e- even today, I think um, is, uh, you know, continuing to have a, a very small but um, steady sort of inflation on the, on the token in terms of the, the rewards that are being paid out. And, you know, that's been adopted now by, you know, essentially you know, all, all the giants, right? We, we adopted it. Uniswap had it for, um, for a time. We, we no longer have it. Um, you know, even Link, after all of these years, um, eventually moved to what is essentially a liquidity mining system right. um, in order to, to, to make their token attractive. Um, and you're right. Like, the, it, it, it does align, um, it, it does align uh, incentives um, for the community members who are participating in it. But right. what it does is whitewash a, um, a the fact that the actual finances are broken right right the, the, the reason why that they, they, you need this incentive is because the the actual activity that you are performing doesn't make money um, the or you know it r- rarely or seldom makes money what's, go on, what's um, the simplest way you've learned to or you've worked out how to describe impermanent loss to someone it's seller's remorse Sellers, right? Okay. Right. Impermanent loss. It, it, it's you know, impermanent loss isn't even something that's intrinsic to AMMs. All right. We. It's a. It's a shame that um, that it's become so conflated with that concept. But you know, impermanent loss. You could. You know, people have been suffering from impermanent loss. You know, for hundreds of years. Um, whenever you sold your house, only to see the housing market continue to climb, mm. you've essentially made impermanent loss. If the housing market ever came back to the price that you sold your house at, you're no longer in losses. Um, but the, the, the reason why I think impermanent loss is so important in AMMs and whereas it's not important in like the house selling example that I just mentioned, right. Is because you feel like when you sold your house, even if the market continues to move up, you don't mind so much because you at least made that decision right. to sell. Right. Whereas with, 
on an AMM, you're like, you don't feel like you were actively, you know, uh, a part of that decision to buy tokens as they're coming down and sell tokens as they're going up. You almost feel like you have been, you know, you've been taken, you know, um, for a ride with the system that you are, um, you know, that you are prescribing, that, that has prescribed for you a certain strategy. Right. And that's the difference, right? And you know, there's actually all kinds of, you know, um, this is, it's, I'm asserting this, you know, not from a, a, a naive perspective. There are things that you can do, like, or there are, um, you know, fairly well-reported, um, you know, phenomena in, in human psychology where when someone has, like, suffers because of a mistake that they've made, yep. they suffer a lot less than if they're suffering because of a mistake that someone else has made. Right. Right. Like if something bad happens to you because of something that someone else has done, you react disproportionately to it than right. if it's something that you have brought on yourself. Right. And that's the impermanent loss thing, right? You never feel like that you brought this on yourself. And it's, be you know, and whether or not that's true is is arguable and we can maybe get into that later. Right. But the, the, the reality is most people were told provide liquidity here, we'll pay you liquidity mining rewards and you will make money. And so when they withdraw and find that they haven't made money, it's a, um, you know, they feel like that mistake was made by someone else and now they are, you know, paying the consequences. And this is a problem. I right. think that that's the, that's why impermanent loss matters in AMMs because it feels like, it happened to you, not something that you did. So I, so 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 the the sort of the basic maths of the formula is if I if if I've got a new token that's just come onto the market, I managed to get into it early, and I'm an early community member. I really believe in the team. I really believe in the project. And so let's call let let's say it's uh, you know. Um, uh, floop token right and i i decide that um the project sets up this liquidity mining program and i've got and i'm and they want to do it against usdc so it's floop usdc and i provide uh a hundred thousand dollars worth of floop and a hundred thousand dollars worth of usdc at the current price and let's say the current price is one cent and if and if the if the project does really well because i backed it and and i believed in it and I, I put $100,000 of my Floop token in there. Let's say that's my entire bag of Floop token. What will happen is, let's say that the token now goes to a dollar and it does 100x. What will happen is that I will have substantially less Floop token and substantially more USDC, but I'll have been selling it all the way up. So now let's, let's say it's a dollar and I pull and I pull out my Floop token and my USDC. Overall, yes, I will have more money than I had at the start, but if I just held the Floop token on its own, is it, I, I don't actually know, for 100x up, what's my difference in profit for, 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 uh, than if I'd um, held it? 90x. 90x. So I would have made so 90x less money by having provided liquidity than if I just held the flute token and hadn't actually provided liquidity. Yeah, that sounds right. So it's always a it's always a square root profile. Okay. So if um you know if you bought if you're providing liquidity at a dollar and um you withdraw your liquidity when it's at a hundred dollars, the average price that you would have um, sold it at is always what's called the, the geometric average. So you take $1 times 100 and then take the square root. So that means that you would have sold at an average price of $10. Right. 
Okay. Because no, uh, it's actually it's not it's not it's not quite a ninety X drop because you've still got some fluke token left, right? right that you can now sell at a hundred dollars, but it's right. such a small amount, right? After a climb like that, that it's it's negligible, right? And so th- this 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 is what makes people feel angry and upset about it especially when when people didn't realize what the what the what the profile of uh liquidity mining would look like i i I certainly didn't realize when you know when i was providing liquidity to uniswap uh v2 pools and so you know uniswap's response to this and, and i'm not sure if it was a response actually to impermanent loss directly but the uniswap model was then going well we we now have these inefficient curves because actually most traded on large tokens that have deep decent liquidity most trading only happens within you know a 10% range of price on a day-to-day basis or a 5% range of price on a day-to-day basis yet you're providing all of this liquidity across the entire range and so now uniswap v3 comes out with concentrated liquidity pools and now I'm able to provide concentrated liquidity so what was you know we we've now we're now at that stage and uniswap v3 is i think 25 percent of fees burnt on ethereum at the moment represents uniswap v3 uh trading so obviously it's a very very popular uh way of doing it you're you when you look at it tvl tvl is now no longer the way that you should measure these things because you know on, absolutely on the, on the v2 pools used to be tvl but now we have capital efficiency like what is the capital efficiency effective liquidity around the range that you care about trading which is harder to sort of analyze but this is why uniswap v3 dominates it versus you know sushi swap v2 or uniswap v2 or anything like that because it's able to provide these this liquidity in these very bounded ranges so so what was it what was it the the you felt carbon can add to this 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 model like where are we now what's the next step yeah so the the uh i i'm calling it asymmetric liquidity okay um the and it's the um it's the rejection of the 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 mechanism um, that kind of underpins all AMM activity. Some people call it the the mean reverting profile. Um, you know, some people I, it, it is actually a, a a short gamma option. It's a free short gamma option, um, but the it, it's essentially what, what's, what's the a short gamma option for those who don't. Yeah. Okay. So let's let, let's let's talk a little bit about what is it that you are what is it that you're buying when you decide to uh, provide liquidity to an AMM. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think about things in terms of, you know, if you are making a, a specific bet on, on something, right? So for example, if I buy, um, if I go to an exchange today and buy a Bitcoin, mm-hmm. the, the bet that I'm making, or at least in terms of the financial analysis is that the Bitcoin price will be higher in the future mm-hmm. and I'm going to sell that Bitcoin and the Delta is the profit, right? Mm-hmm. And this is called a long position. Mm-hmm. Um, if I decide, um, to, um, if I, you know, let's do the, that same analysis, but now from the opposite side, if I'm buying Bitcoin with Australian dollars now, mm-hmm. I'm predicting that versus Bitcoin, the Australian dollar is going to be worth less in the future. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking a short position on Australian dollars while accumulating a long position in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the bet. And that's the, the simple one that I think, even if people haven't broken it down that way before, it's right. the one that makes a lot of sense. If you if you if you borrowed a huge amount of um, money from your bank to buy a house, you are now in a leveraged long position on the real estate market. Right. Um, and 
you know, and just like being margin called on, you know, on Bybit, the bank can margin call you if the if the housing price, uh, the housing market starts to collapse, they will seize your house and sell it to recover the collateral. And, you know, it's it, once you start realizing that all markets, you know, sort of behave the same way, you can apply the same lingo and, and rhetoric um, to all of them. Um, things start to make a lot of sense. A short position, a, um, a, a short gamma position is very, very different. A short gamma position is when you say, I think that the price of this certain thing with respect to some other thing is going to stay basically the same. Mm-hmm. Right. So you might, you might have a look at like the great British pound right now versus the US dollar and think, you know what? This time next year, these two things are going to be exchanging at basically the same rate. And if you wanted to, you could say, I bet that that's the case, right? I, I literally like, I'll bet, I'll bet my friend a hundred bucks that in a year from now and during that entire year, um, the exchange rate for these two currencies is, is going absolutely nowhere, right? There's I all the shorts and all the longs will not perform. Mm-hmm. That is exactly the bet that you're taking when you provide liquidity to an AMM. Mm-hmm. The only way to make money is when um, the the prices relative to each other don't move, right. but there's significant trading volume in the right. in the in the meantime. Right, and which that is why, is, which is why that's short gamma. Which is why things like Curve do well because because exactly. Curve is essentially stable stable pairs, and so you aren't taking any bet on the underlying assets moving versus each other or moving versus the market. All you're doing Correct. is earning the fees for trading between. So that that's a Which short is, gamma position. Why it's a short it called, gamma position. Why is it called short gamma? So in in options pricing, there are um, a bunch of Greek letters, even though some of them aren't Greek letters. That describe the the profile for uh, for how things move, right? So you've got like alpha is generally the um, you know the, the appreciation, the, the, yes. yeah, the appreciation and stuff. There's this beta, which is like the rate of that appreciation. Yeah. Um. The, the and then the gamma is kind of the the second derivative of that. Um. And then there there are a couple of others. Yeah. The um. And so the that short gamma comes from the fact that. What you're betting on is that the gamma is going to be zero, right? right. That the um, that the the rate of the thing appreciating is going to effectively be zero, right? Um, and that it's it's from that options device, right? I'm not. It's not clear to me if there are too many. Uh, like it's a very unattractive option. Um, so you know, I'm not sure that there are too many. <laughs> you know, too many uh, examples from the option. traditional world where. Sure. Yeah, where someone would would offer it, but I'm sure that there are right there. Um, you know, especially in markets where people are, um, let's say, incentivized or you know that they benefit from keeping the market on an even keel. So, yeah. for example, um, in some like precious metals is a really interesting one because it interfaces with like manufacturing and like right. um, you know pharmaceuticals and that kind of thing. And so, it wouldn't surprise me if there are um, those types of insurance contracts where you actually are deliberately trying to keep the market, like the price of, I don't know, palladium or rhodium or something, you know, predictable. Um, and, you know, the futures markets aren't necessarily, you know, um, liquid enough for you to, you know, um, to produce enough catalytic converters next year for your Toyota, you know, production line or whatever. So there might be those kinds of options or something in, in those kinds of sophisticated markets. I haven't really looked into it too much. But for whatever reason, in DeFi, it was like the only the only option that was available for everyone and that's it's weird that such an unattractive 
you know, boutique uh, type of trading profile um, was the thing that everyone was using and that all of the people that were using it are like bullish, <laughs> like long on the tokens that they're providing liquidity with. It's the exact opposite of what you should do. I don't think it's weird. I don't think it's weird. I think that the, you know, the, why did Uniswap, why did the, why did the, constant function amm become popular it became popular because it solved a different problem than what we're describing here it solved the problem that it's right. difficult to build an exchange on ledger if you look at what ether delta was doing like it was like it was it, it was such a clunky experience because you couldn't do order matching and because you couldn't do order matching and because the order matching functionality was so was so primitive you were like basically picking the things that you wanted to exchange on and then if you know if that if you were front run on that then it would sort of disappear there wasn't like an alternative uh thing that you were buying and like you had to decide how much you had to take the whole order and like so all of that stuff we ended up with very expensive very difficult to run contracts so then coming with this very simple curve functionality meant that people could create the the, the, the this functionality on ledger and so people piled into it because ultimately you know people also often talk we, we're speed running the history of finance and right now we're in the very right. naive phase of not really understanding the 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 true um economics behind the decisions that are being made i think we're only starting to get this at night like talking about the gam sorry talking about the greeks in 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 from the form of like the um economics derivative economics associated with this stuff is only just coming into the everyday speech uh, like um the everyday uh, vernacular for for defi and so i don't think i don't think it's weird i think it's i think i think it's absolutely the idea that we are we think a lot of the time defi and crypto thinks we are reinventing things when we aren't reinventing right. things we just aren't we just we're just naive in how we're approaching stuff right no okay let me uh, let me phrase it another way it's uh it makes it makes sense given the um the infrastructure right, right. the an, AM, an amm behaves very very well on a, on a blockchain right. whereas uh, a clob for example doesn't behave at all um on a on a distributed ledger um, but the financial instrument that it offers is generally the one that no one wants to use um, in, the, in, in the sense that they are the reason that they are interested in a project's success and making sure that token's liquid so that it can be successful is because they have the expectation that they're going to sell those tokens at a, at a high price point in the future. Right. And being long on a token um, means that, that that is in conflict with having a short gamma position on that same token. Right. Um, and, you know, you could argue that, yeah, they're hedging. And the reality is that most people aren't. They just don't understand the the thing that they've bought. Okay. Um, so how so, does so does, Carbon solve this? Like, what, what does Carbon yeah, do? So car yeah, so Carbon, um, for, for one, Carbon is not an AMM. Um, so where, um, where other AMMs force you to to take on that um that short gamma position um carbon instead provides you with the ability to um to play with the settings of the liquidity that you have provided and so it's only short gamma if you want it to be um a um let's say that uh coming back to the example that we had before where if i go to you know my exchange right now and buy bitcoin in australian dollars um and my expectation 
is that I'm going to sell that Bitcoin in the future for, let's say, a twenty percent, a twenty percent um, greater price, and, and keep the the profits myself. Carbon lets you essentially pre-order those types of things. Mm. If you uh, if you say that um, you know I'm providing this Bitcoin and I want to sell it for you know for fifty thousand dollars, please. Carbon says, fine, I will advertise that Bitcoin for $50,000. Mm-hmm. And um, in much the same way that eBay operates, there is no guarantee that someone is going to find that price attractive. Mm-hmm. But your expectation is that as the market moves, eventually that price will be attractive. Mm-hmm. So there's no need for an oracle or a keeper or something to you know, be constantly keeping their, um, their eyes on things. Instead, mm-hmm. it's just an open marketplace. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that when you have a lot of people that are speculating on the same tokens, right? If I'm deciding that I'm going long on Bitcoin, I promise you there is someone else somewhere who is taking a short position on that mm. same token and so mm. forth. Um, and I might even have like a, a nuanced, um, you know, view of the market. Like if there's a period of uncertainty, I might already have some Bitcoin and I might already have some, um, some Australian dollars. But one of the things that I could do is say, you know what, if Bitcoin continues to move down in price, if there's a capitulation coming, I would actually uh, be happy to buy Bitcoin at that price mm-hmm. with the expectation that I'm going to sell whatever Bitcoin I've accumulated there at my original target price. So mm-hmm. essentially add to my, um, you know, my my Bitcoin position, but without necessarily changing the the, the price targets that I had in mind on a traditional order book. So, so this, just to just to sort of like reiterate this, like re- read this back to you on carbon, you get to set your own sell high, buy low or buy low, sell high strategy that repeats. You can go, OK, right. I, within these ranges, I'm a buyer within these ranges. I'm a seller within these ranges and I'm neutral in between. And so and whatever. Uh, I set those to be the 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 carbon will allow you to continually recycle that strategy as long as the price is moving in the ranges in which you are you are either a buyer or a seller. Yes, absolutely correct. Right, you can say that I will always buy ETH when it's um, you know below fifteen hundred, mm-hmm. and I will always sell ETH when it's above two thousand five hundred. And that essentially sets up, you know, a, a, a very natural bid-ask spread for you. Now, you could do this on a centralized limit order book if you wanted to, but it's not at all trivial. No. Because no. What, what a centralized limit order book asks you to do is to stratify your positions, right? You need to, yeah. you, you put a certain number of units at a certain price, and that's it. Um, and then if you wanted to, um, you know, to delever your prediction... Right. You might say if I've got, you know, 10 ETH, I'll put one at each of these different price points. Right. In case the price keeps going up, I don't want to sell everything because um, I might miss out on some of those higher returns. And I think actually on many many exchanges, you can't even put, let's say, let's say that I've got USDC to start off with and I want to, I want to go long ETH, but then I want to sell ETH when it's at a certain price. I think on many exchanges, I couldn't even put a sell order for something I don't yet own. Exactly. This is this is what makes Carbon very, very special, is that you can you can tell it what your intentions are, for example, to, to sell ETH, even though you don't have the ETH yet. So in a strategy, you might say, um, I'm, you know, you know, things the market's looking kind of dumpy right now. 
um, you know, maybe ETH is going to head um, back below um, 1700 into sort of the 1500 range. You can say, look, I'm going to put up uh, this amount of USDC um, to buy ETH in that range. I'm sure that the market will um, be right. grateful um, to, fi- to, to, to take, you know, to find some liquidity at that price point. And so I will, that's, that's where I'm happy buying it. Um, but I don't have ETH yet. I've only got USDC. Mm-hmm. But on my strategy, it already, it already says, okay, what do you want to do with the ETH that you've bought, right? What's the price point that you want to sell it at? And you can say, well, I, once I have ETH, please sell it between 2,500 and 3,000. Mm-hmm. And this means that the, you know, the, the protocol already knows what you want, right? Your intentions are clear. And so as that ETH is being purchased by you, it's already um, put in that other price range. And so when the market comes back up, it will find that liquidity again. And as the market moves through what is essentially your bid ask spread, that's where your profits are are derived. And that's, a, I think, is a very natural, um, you know, it's it, it's like the most basic of economic primitives, mm. right? To, to to buy something at some some price with the expectation that I'm going to sell it at some future price. Even on a CLOB, you can't do that because it will, you know, they generally will process your order and then the proceeds will go to some other account somewhere. And right. then you need to touch the book a second time um, to put them back in. And maintaining that position is very, very difficult. And it's deliberate. Because, or at least I, I, I speculate that it's deliberate, um, because these um, these centralized systems um, charge you for every time you poke the order book, right? There's a maker fee there um, that, you know, uh, they are incentivized to make sure that you have to perform as many operations as possible. Um, and so I suspect that that's why they haven't developed it. it. I could be wrong. It could be that it's just never occurred to them that this kind of thing is automatable. Um but yeah, that's that's essentially um, what carbon is. It gives you back the agency to trade the way that you wanted to trade. I think it may also be that, uh, and I'm completely speculating here because I know very little about CLOBs. But like, um, it might be that CLB CLOBs have are, are not stateful, so they have no concept of time. And what right. we have here is a concept of this will happen and then if this happens that will happen um but this can only happen after that so it may it may be that it's either the order is valid or the order is invalid there's no such thing as an if then statement for example i don't i don't i don't know maybe maybe not yeah it's possible it's uh, yeah i often forget that um like the the technology that we play with every day it 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 does feel very different you know, to if you were building just like a, a web app or something in a centralized system. Right. Um, so it could be it could be that there's advantages that you get out of um, state based logic that right. permit something like this. But it's also like um, it could just be as well that after dealing with state based systems for long enough, certain like um, certain innovations feel more natural. Like you, you often come to some realization where it's like, why hasn't anyone done this before? And it's because their heads just weren't in that space, right? Yeah. Even though it seems obvious now, like it, like some of the biggest innovations always seem obvious in retrospect. Yeah. Um, but until you're actually, you know, until it's defined and described, no one can really see it yet. You know, it's kind of the the great irony of um, of in- invention is that it's only obvious after you can actually see it. Before then, it's uh, it's not clear why people weren't in the the you know the right headspace to um, to discover it themselves. 
Potentially, I like. I, I, um, you know, from reading things like Flash Boys and things like that, there, there is, there's clearly a lot of emphasis on performance for CLOBs, right? And as soon as you have any state-based logic that you have to deal with in the right. order matching engine, you're going to reduce the performance. When we're talking like microseconds, nanoseconds, that people are wanting to put trades on stuff, you're actually going to affect the performance of that and so if you have a clob that it's, its whole purpose is just the order book and the matching engine and that's all it has to do and it's stateless and there and, and as in the order book is stateless and then you have all of these algorithmic traders that sit around it who will run the their conditional conditional based logic against that right. then the order book itself doesn't have to worry about state-based logic it just has the you know because it's it, all it's providing is the order book and the and the and the matching engine and so it may be a performance-based thing potentially so Could be. Let, let's let's talk about let's talk about i, I mentioned ether delta and the reason i mentioned ether delta is because ether delta had positions orders that then you could as a as as a user of ether delta you could then take those positions so how does how's bancor solve this problem of all of those or sorry how's carbon solve this problem of all of those open orders being a pain in the ass to deal with from the point of view of a user because if if i'm putting positions into carbon mm. i'm putting positions essentially into a quasi order book right an order book like functionality so like how does how do you make it silky smooth from the point of view of someone who's just like i just want to buy within this range i don't want to pick the orders i care about i just want to buy within this range right yeah the, the short answer is the software development kit so the um the the app runs entirely out of um the user's browser um, and this has, you know, uh, it, it understands how carbon is, is organized. And so if you say, you know, I, I don't want to see, you know, I don't want to see all of the positions. I just want the best possible price, mm. um, for, you know, buying two ETH or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, it knows how to, uh, you know, sort through things and, and, and give you back the, the transaction that you're looking for. Mm. Of course, uh, we actually have, um, on the, on the app. And if anyone is, you know, is interested in looking at this, if you just go in and like put in some obscene amount of, of stuff and just like, uh, you know, basically say, I'll buy all of the ETH liquidity on, on carbon and show me the thing. There's a little button that says routing. That if you click on it, it will actually show you like all of the, the strategies that you're interacting with and you can deselect them if you don't, you know, if the, you don't want to interact with those kinds of things. But that's the short version of it. We have an open source SDK right. that is lightweight enough that it runs out of the browser with all of the logic in it. And that means that the, um, you know, there it, to, to run something like that on a, on a smart contract, I think would be um, like pretty, uh, like it, it, the computational intensity mm -hmm. of it, especially for something like layer one um, Ethereum, would be um, insane, um, but luckily we, you know, we live in a world where you know your smartphone is perfectly capable of, of you know, of, of running something of this complexity without breaking a sweat. And so it's really the that marriage, I think, of of proper software engineering on like the app side with um, you know smart contract uh, fundamentals. Whereas Ether Delta was very much smart contract fundamentals, but didn't really have the the software engineering to support it. Yeah, and I honestly think this is the this is the genius. This is the genius of carbon for me is is the where where does where does the where do the open orders sit well they sit on ledger but how do you work out av out of all of them what the from a, from the user's intent actually best suits that user and routing 
uh, order routing or routing if you're American um, is is the uh, is the is the is the complex part. That's the computationally complex part, and paying for that computation on Ledger is really, really expensive. But why would you pay for that computation on Ledger? It's not like that needs to be trustless. The thing that needs to be trustless is the fulfillment of the orders. But the working out the best route, that can absolutely be done locally. And if you have a way of going, okay, these are all of the orders that are available. Out of these orders, if I fulfill these from these available orders in this way, I'm going to get the best possible price for the intent that the user has for this okay well then that's the that's the route that's the routing i'm going to choose i'm essentially then making a call to the ledger going all of these orders in these proportions and then that gets executed but then you're not got any of the complexity that you have with doing a matching engine especially if you're trying to do a matching engine on ledger because your matching is essentially your routing and and being able to put your matching into your routing and have the computation for that done browser side by the computers that are interfacing that that's the bit that i think is so clever because it actually also makes carbon itself relatively simple from a from an on ledger point of view right yeah, exactly. Yeah. Carbon is extremely lightweight for exactly the reasons that you pointed out. And so, you know, the, um, what's, what's interesting is like the, when I was first discussing, um, you know, carbon with the people that were like close to the project very early on in its development, um, one of the things that they expressed concern with was, you know, the, the gas costs for something right. this complex. Right. Um, but the, the, reality is like, and this is, you, you no longer have to take my word for it. You can actually just go and have a look at the product as it exists on, on chain right now is that because there are no oracles, right? There, there's no oracle to update. There is no TWAP or anything else. Um, there's no like, uh, like fee register or something that you need to, um, you know, keep track of. It really is just like the bare bones infrastructure. And this means that in terms of its gas efficiency, I, I'm, you know, it, it's even less complex than some systems like Uniswap V2 in some situations. Right. The, um, and certainly compared to its, its concentrated liquidity, um, you know, competitors, it's, it's, it's massively more gas efficient than that. The, the difference, um, the difference is exactly what you've said. Rather than do the aggregation on chain, the the on chain component is just essentially the the database of positions, and you have to perform the aggregation as like an abstraction layer above it, and that's what the SDK is for. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, the uh, you know the, it depends on who you talk to. There are people that are um, you know immutability maximalists, right, and would claim that any SDK is kind of um, you know, it is not really honoring the, um, the, the, the blockchain ethos, um, to which I say, you know, eventually all of these things have front ends, right? It's not like Ethereum supports its own app interface or something like that. Maybe it will eventually, but there, there are, you need to make, um, concessions for that kind of thing. And yeah. as you said, the important thing is the user's decisions and the actual execution of the, the swaps themselves and how that liquidity is distributed. So like everything that matters is on the the chain itself yep. and then the the logic that sits over the top of it in a way i don't want to call it superfluous but it's like it's it's only necessary if efficiency is your um your end goal and of course right. it is we want to get offer our users that but it's also not predicated on it anyone 
could have a look at the stuff that's on Carbon and be like, you know what? I think the Bancor SDK sucks. I'm yeah. going to make my own SDK right. and it's going to route through those positions faster and more efficiently or whatever. Right. And I welcome that. That's the whole point of open sourcing the SDK in the first place. Right. It was a, it's a non-proprietary interface to to the to the Bancor to to the um, exactly. Carbon um, orders, and I think I think that for me is also the key. Like you don't you can go and you can go and use those orders directly if you want to. Um, it's just going to be a much less good user experience and you, you could, but you know, the SDK is the thing that allows you to work out which positions you need to be taking, but the actual, but the actual, uh, execution of those positions is still trustless. You're still submitting it to the ledger and saying, Hey, I want these positions. It's just the formation of which positions, the, the optimization of making sure that you pick the right positions is done as a little piece of code that you're running in your browser. I, I, I don't see any problem with that at all. No. Um, have you, have you actually had any decentralization maximalists have a problem with that? No, not really. Um, it's, it's mostly, um, the like it no the, the short answer is no okay. there are some projects so for example one inch is a very interesting aggregator and they're the exception not the norm um that they refuse to use an sdk mm -hmm. so the the way that you interact with them um is is very like very very smart contract focused mm -hmm. um whereas you know like kaiba and um you know matcher and paraswap the, yep. these things are a little bit more flexible uh -huh. um so it's more like that and it's not that's not because one inch is necessarily a you know decentralization maximalist or anything like that it's just that their system is set up explicitly for you know for smart contracts and i think that because of the uh, the absurd number of integrations that one inch has yeah. managing like all of these sdks and you know the 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 dependency tree would just be insane anyone that's used you know, a, a forgotten um, like Debian fork of Linux or something will understand exactly how bad dependency trees can get. Um, so I think for them, it's about keeping everything like at its core, right. like and focusing just on the on the immutable aspects. So yeah, I, I don't think that there's any sort of like I, I don't really think that there's any ideological um, you know pushback to to having an SDK. Almost all projects have them. Any project with the front end, as I pointed out is is conceding that already right um and we all kind of know that you know the interacting with the blockchain directly is a fucking nightmare mm -hmm. the um you know the the interface on you know which not not all blockchain projects have had the the foresight that radix has to uh have uh, you know a, a wallet that actually describes exactly what the you know the uh the interaction with the blockchain is and right. how to interpret it instead we've got something like metamask Right. That um, you know throws you know garbled uh, you know numbers back at you, and then asks you to sign a transaction that you can't possibly interpret. So f for those reasons and others, there is always going to be this concession, at least on Ethereum, where um, there needs to be some interface over the top of the smart contracts. Right. And I think anyone's been in the industry long enough appreciates that, and there is no controversy surrounding having an SDK. Right. So what's what's next for Carbon? What you what what do you want to achieve in the sort of next six twelve months? Yeah, so I think um, the the, um, the 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 first priority is to get up some of like, let's call them the um, the vanity metrics. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you, for example, that TVL is not necessarily a good indicator of um, of really anything anymore. Even volume is a bad indication. Mm -hmm. My favorite anecdote for volume right now is that, you know, there's two, um, two brothers on Solana that were not even wash trading because it was like Bitcoin 
you know, and you can't wash trade a token that is, uh, you know, has, you have nothing to do with, but essentially, you know, making it look like that there's more active trading yeah. volume than there actually is. Yeah. Um, so volume TVL, none of these things, in my opinion, actually speak to whether or not a product is successful, but it looks good. Yep. Um, one of the things that I would like to do is to get the TVL um, over a certain threshold yep. um, and then, you know, at least feel sort of comfortable that there is a, um, you know, a, a, a demographic that has found um, utility in carbon that is interesting to them. Mm -hmm. And that means that I, you know, I will have had um, sufficient time um, to speak with them about the kinds of things that they're doing, you know, um, if there's any, uh, you know, other projects such as Alluvium that we were speaking to recently, um, and, you know, other, um, other projects that might have need for something that looks more like an order book than, than looks like an AMM. Right. Um, and then once you've got kind of, there, there's this, there's this point where you've got sort of critical mass mm -hmm. and then you can start to sort of explore the, um, the rest of the blockchain ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, alternative layer ones, um, and you know, the, 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 um, the scaling solutions, the layer twos on, on Ethereum, um, are, are a huge priority, um, for me personally. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's, that's what's next. There's obviously, there's a whole bunch of other things that carbon can do that I haven't spoken about publicly. Um, that, you always um, do this. That you did this at the end of the last <laughs> podcast. You're like, you tease. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, there, there are a couple of, you know, there, there are things that I, I, I can speak about because I don't think that they're, you know, anyone I think with, um, you know, who's paying attention will, would be able to deduce some of these things. So for example, the, the way that carbon has set up its strategies mm -hmm. is that, um, your position, like it, it, rather than having a single bonding curve with two token balances on it, we have two bonding curves, each with one token balance. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you've got like a bonding curve per token, mm -hmm. and there's no reason that those bonding curves need to be on the same chain for example, mm. right? There's there's nothing precluding mm. um, having a RDX curve on RDX and an mm. ETH curve on ETH. Mm -hmm. The question is, is, you know, how do you deal? Like it's all of the, the normal bridging stuff, right? Mm. If, um, you know, how do you deal with asynchronicity? Um, mm. You know, but there are aspects, at least to this situation, where um, the, the state um, is relatively stable mm -hmm. because the only way that you can affect um, the exchange rate between chains mm. um, is by trading from that same chain. So, mm. you know, as long as there's like some lockup period or something for, for liquidity um, where you can't, for example, rug, um, you know, the east side of the chain when someone's right. trying to transact from the other side, right. um, this system could actually work because you the only way to trade on that pool is mm. from the other chain, right? Mm. There, It's not like the, the pool state can sort of drift off into... Um, you know, into an un uh, an unforeseen direction um, that would cause the exchange rate to be to be grossly impacted. Things like that. Um, you know, th there is a lot of flexibility that we get out of this system that I think is, um, you know, th that is speaking to sorts of the, the sorts of problems that the industry is interested in. Um, there's also ways that um, you can add more, um, you know, more dependence um, on things like time mm -hmm. um, into the strategies that you create. So at the moment, like in, even in a CLOB, um, the carbon will, you know, will uh, continue to honor the price bounds that you've set up. 
but they're static, right? Mm. They don't evolve in time. Mm. It's very, very easy to set up a situation where it's where your price um, is at some, you know, is some constant multiplied by, you know, some ratio of the current block number, for example, mm. so that your bid price and ask price can change mm. as, you know, as time moves, right. um, moves on. And this sets up, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that people do already, right? If they've identified a, you know, a channel or a triangle or whatever it is, you know, I'm trying to pay attention to how day traders think. Right. Um, and this would allow them to, you know, to take advantage of, of those biases should they have them. I also, so these kinds also, of things. It will also help for, I, like, I think it will also help for long, long-term long hold as well. What you're describing is essentially like Robert Schiller, who's um, sort of a leading economist out in America, um, who I think is at Harvard. He ha- he his, his like sort of like quip is that the market is a random walk with a lean. So like there, right. is, there, there is, there is a, everything, everything mathematic, mathematics around the analysis of price movement says that it's random um from a, from an external observer point of view so you but but it does trend it does it does exactly. go in in a direction so like being able to ha- being able to say this is the trend line that i want my range to follow that makes so much sense for long-term hold as well yeah exactly and uh you know it, it, even for um so for example um, the um, the liquid staking unit on uh, um, on RDX. The sorry XRD. The um, you know the the fact that that wrapper is expected to appreciate in value versus the underlying because right. it's a you know a shared ownership of a pool. Right means you're, that you're, if you're someone wants to provide, 7%, so you want the exactly want the, right. Okay, yeah. You want a gradient, right? It's like yeah, right. like you know, I'm happy to. To, to buy a wrapper from you for, um, you know, exchange for XID or, you know, I, I will, um, you know, I, I, I will, you know, whatever. I, I'll buy XID or the wrapper from right. you, but you have to um, obey my, you know, my ask and, and, and bid, which right. is fine. Um, but if you leave that alone for too long, eventually you're just going to get opt out because right. the, the, the wrapper is becoming too valuable. Right. Um, but if you've got a predictable 7% return, then you just tilt, right. That thing at about a 7% lean. Right. Um, and that way, no matter where you are in the future, your bid ask spread is, is roughly the same. You might have to calibrate it like every once in a while, but you know, if it's, uh, if the returns are, are, are relatively stable, then, um, you know, you may only have to adjust that parameter, like once a year or once every two years or something like that. And this means that those kinds of, of pairs, um, like we've got them on ETH as well, like rocket pool ETH, um, right. has that same, that, that same trend. Right. Um, you know, there, there is a, a, you know, an explicit use case for this. And yeah. because of that lean, because you're guaranteed that rocket pool ETH is going to be worth more, you know, compared to ETH. 10 years from now than right. it is today, right. having a short, having a short gamma option on it isn't necessarily a terrific idea. Right. Um, right. Because you're so basically yeah, the, giving up the, your staking rewards to the market, right? <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. And so, yeah. I, and, and at the same time, you do want to make sure that these things are liquid because, you know, it can stress the chain to sort of unwrap these things. There's usually a lockup period for security reasons and, and other things. And so to make sure that these liquid staking units are actually truly liquid um, and that you can exchange it with someone for the underlying at, you know, usually a small discount is totally like that is a a genuinely good thing to be supporting. 
Um, and I think that, you know, our, our solution here um, is the, the most compelling way to do it. Um, but we'll see, you know, there's, um, so yeah, there, there are these types of like little loose ends that I want to tie up with, with Carbon's development. There's essentially like going back to the editing room floor, all of the stuff that didn't make the, you know, the, the critical path for the MVP, right. Getting the, the, the best possible, cleanest, simplest version of the product to market in the, in the shortest length of time. It was, it was, you know, we actually broke, like, uh, we did it. I don't think we just broke our own record. We like. The, the development time on Carbon was shorter than V3, V2.1, and in, and Uniswap V3, yeah. right, in terms of um, what we did. But yeah, that meant that there was all of this stuff that it's like, you know what, I do want to bring that stuff back into the discussion and um, and find out how to support it. So, so there's basically, that's what's there's, next. There's, there's, a, there's a Schneider cut of, uh, of Carbon coming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a, a director's cut of carbon um, just around the corner. But yeah, my my priorities are still making sure that we do a good job of um, promoting the product that we have. Like, I think that what we have is already exceptionally good. And I don't want to get into this, uh, like you said, you know, like on the last podcast, um, I don't want to get into this, this habit. It's kind of a cheap tactic of um, telling people that, you know, there's more coming, right? I want to be more confident with the product that we have and teaching people how to use it because i think that it's already so exciting um and then you know just be more open about the other things that i have in mind but not have it be presented in such a way that your interest in what we're doing is predicated on what's coming because it's not i think that what we have already is so good that there's plenty of reason to to be involved and, and use the product as it is. A hundred percent. And anyone who's 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 looked at the simulations, like you can go, like you've done, you you and the team have done a fantastic job of providing a simulation tool which allows you to go and back tech test your strategies on on carbon and go, well, what would have happened if I had provided liquidity on carbon rather than Uniswap V2 or Uniswap V3 within these ranges? And and the returns are unbelievable, like changing changing something from like a like a, a very low return slash maybe a loss depending on what the price movement was to significant profit using something like carbon so i would recommend everyone who ha- hasn't had a chance to go and check it out go and check out it's uh, carbon.network if you want to go and look at it um and uh you will find there a bunch of tools to also simulate um what you might what 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 strategies you might want to perform to see how they would perform if using carbon versus sort of other other tools so like i highly recommend that as well anyone who's got an interest in DeFi, anyone who's provided liquidity on uniswap v2 or uniswap v3 anyone who's looking to come back into the market has some tokens that they want to provide liquidity to the market with carbon's a fantastic option uh, mark thank you so much for coming on the show um it's always a pleasure talking with you uh and uh yeah i look forward to coming back and discussing the director's cut of carbon at some point in the future yeah, hopefully not too far in the future. Thank you so much, Piers. It's been a pleasure speaking with you as always. You better call on these guys. I'm going radical. I'm going radical. I'm going radical. I'm going radical. I wish be D5, never on a decline. Building the future, I feel like a savage.